this morning through our study of the book of Romans, I would ask you to turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Am I on? Can y'all hear me? Don't sound like I'm on to me. That's better there, isn't it? John chapter 8, beginning with verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with their older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, in this passage from John chapter 8, we find an attempt by uh, the, the, the religious leaders to trap Jesus. And, and there was a woman who was caught in adultery, and they bring, him to the, bring her to the Lord. They throw her down at his feet. And they said, this woman was caught in adultery. And the law says that she must be stoned. But what do you say? Now, they knew that if he just said, oh, it's okay, let her go, he would have been breaking the law. Then again, if he had said, she deserves to die, let her be stoned. Then his words like, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, would have fallen on deaf ears. The law required that two or more witnesses to the act be brought uh, before the one who was accused. The witnesses would also have been required to bring the man who was caught in this act with the woman, but there is no man here. And Jesus saw right away through what they were doing, um, and he says, let those of you who are without sin. Now, when he says without sin, he's talking about let those of you who have never committed this sin throw the first stone. And they were quiet. And it says that Jesus began to write with his finger on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. Some have suggested that maybe he was writing certain sins. And those who were around, they saw, maybe he even wrote their names. Because they got quiet. And the, beginning with the older ones, they began to leave. And Jesus exercised his right to judge her, not on the basis of the law, but on the basis of what he had come to do. To give his life for sinners and to, to, to save those who were lost. 
And when Jesus says to her, go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, he wasn't telling her, don't ever sin at all, although that's what he would have preferred. But what he means here is, don't keep doing the same thing. You see, that's what repentance requires. When I repent of a sin, it requires that I don't keep on in that sin, in that particular sin. And, and, and I believe that this, this text here in John chapter 8 is an exact illustration of what we find in the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. You know, I, I thought about this all week long. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought, you know what? I could preach on that verse every Sunday. And as I told you last week, what I intend to do this morning is not only to, 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 to make sure we understand that in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation, but to explain why there's no condemnation. And that's what Paul here is attempting to do. We have the law, but like the woman in John's gospel, we're unable to keep the law. We are condemned by it, and we cannot be set free from, law's con from the law's condemnation because the law is powerless. The law says, do this and live. The law says, obey me or you die or you're condemned. But the law doesn't give us any power to do that. The law just simply says, obey or die. But Paul says in verse 2, well, let's begin with verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's as if in these verses, Jesus is saying to you and I, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Just the same as he said, we were just as guilty as the woman caught in adultery. And, and we, Jesus is saying to us, go and sin no more because I do not condemn you. Romans 8 through 4 teach us that not only are we delivered from the law's condemnation, but we are delivered from sin's power in our life. Justification and sanctification are two things that go together. You can't have one without the other, but they are not the same thing. We need to understand that justification, being made right with God, being saved, being born again, being in Christ, is a one-time event that happens in an instant, in a moment. And it's eternal. But from that very moment... God begins a work in us, and He has promised us that He will complete that work. And that work, that's called sanctification. Uh, the, 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 this is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ. This is the process of being made holy. 
holiness. In the last several months, we have talked a lot about holiness in, in, in Wednesday evenings, uh, in our Wednesday evening Bible studies, in the sermons on Sunday morning, we keep hearing this sanctification, holiness, holiness, holiness. Hebrews tells us that without holiness, no one will see God. No one will see the Lord. God is in the process of making us holy. And Jesus, uh, in, in sanctification, he has settled the penalty for sin. It's, it's settled. And in sanctification, it is him making us holy. It is the process of making me hate my sin more and more every day. Do you hate your sin? You know, Charles Spurgeon said, how could I ever love the sin that nailed my Savior to a cross. And we like so much today. We, we see our sins today and, to, and in our culture today, we try to soften the blow of sin. You know, people are not drunks anymore. They're alcoholics. Doesn't that sound better? We don't call them whores anymore. We call them ladies of the night. Doesn't that sound better? But the Bible is clear. God made it clear that what, that what sin he condemns as sin will always be sin, regardless of whatever names we give to it. But he says that we have been saved from this, the power of this. Sin no longer has power. That's what he talked about in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 7. He said, sin will not have dominion over you. You've died to sin. How can you live any longer in it? And so now we, we, we walk in, in, a, in a state of sanctification. And it says here that by sending his son to be a sin offering, he condemned sin in the sinful flesh. And look at verse 4. <clears throat> First three words. In order that... In order that here, Paul says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life. We've been set free from, from the law of sin and death in Christ. God did what the law couldn't do. He saved us in order that. Then he tells us in verse four why he did it. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And that's what God is doing day by day. In these verses, we have two great saving works of God, justification and sanctification. And the first, which is justification, it's the deliverance from the penalty of sin. And the second, which is sanctification, is deliverance from sin's power. And God has accomplished both in every single believer in Jesus Christ. God is the agent of our justification. The Holy Spirit is the agent of our sanctification. The Lord Jesus Christ makes both works possible by his death and his resurrection. It's what we talked about last week. We saw how the Trinity, our, our salvation is a Trinitarian work that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all play a part in our salvation. And, and, and it says, Holy Spirit lives in us. And we talked about how, and I believe this with all my heart and soul, ladies and gentlemen. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you have no desire in your life to be holy, you have no desire to be conformed to the image of Christ, then there's only one thing I can say to you. You need to be saved. Amen. 
Everything that the Trinity has done, it's all directed towards one goal, and it's found there in verse 4, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is what God's intention was. We see four important truths here uh, <clears throat> about holiness that we must examine. Holiness is justification's goal. God condemned sin in Christ so that holiness might appear in us. I love the way that one of the Puritans put it. He said, we need to understand that Jesus stood before God as if he were me so that I could stand before God as if I were him. His, his righteousness has been imputed to us. It has been credited to us. And God has made us alive in Christ. This is what Paul says in, in, in the book of Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive in Christ so that we might live for him. Do you live for him? Do you wake up every day and say, God, today, this is your day. I present myself to you a living sacrifice. You take my life and you do with it what you will. Because I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. This is what, do you, do you live each day to live for Christ? You know, we struggle. We all struggle with this. I struggle with this. Every single day of living part of my life for the world and part of my life for Christ. But I'll promise you this. The more I progress in, my, in, in holiness, the more I progress in sanctification, I am finding that the world holds less and less allure for me. There's nothing there for me. But it is still there. And this is the, should be the same for every single one of us. So holiness is the, the, the goal of justification. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> Very familiar verses right here. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, we, which God prepared beforehand that we should do what? That we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. That we should walk in the, in, in the works that God has given to us, that He has created in us, and we are to walk. We are to walk every single day as if those who are saved by grace through faith in Christ truly belong to Him. You know, that's what holiness is. That's what sanctification is. Holiness and sanctification is me learning more and more every day as I depend on the Holy Spirit moment by moment in every aspect of my life. As I repent of my sin and confess my sin and I stay in God's word and I stay on my knees in prayer. It is me learning to live what God says I am. You know what God says you are? He says you're saved. He says you're not condemned. He says you're his child by adoption. He says, now go live like that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you live like that every day of your life? 
But I want to tell you something none of us do. But tomorrow we should more than we do today. And the next day we should do more than we did tomorrow. And on and on it goes. And, 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 and Paul says here, you know, it's by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Over here in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For God has done what the law couldn't do. God is the one who did this. God is the one who deserves the glory for this. There in chapter in, in, in Ephesians 2, he said, So that no one may boast. You know why we can't boast? Because it's for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Now, when it talks about the law being weakened by the flesh, it doesn't mean the law was weak. It means I was weak. The law is holy and righteous and good, Paul says. I'm the one that, that, that is weak. And God says, for what the law could not do, weakened by the flesh, God did how? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. There upon the cross of Calvary, <coughs> the Lord Jesus Christ, he took all of our sin, all of it. And he bore the sin of his people. And there God poured out the wrath of uh, his wrath on him. And, and he condemned sin in the flesh. And Jesus, one of the most important words Jesus ever said in his entire earthly ministry was this. You ready? It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. Tetelestai. You know, it's an interesting word. In those days when a king would go off to war, and when he would come back into the city, there would be a parade. The king would be on a white horse riding in the front. The crowds would be cheering. They would have all the spoils of war, all the prisoners of war, and the king would ride through the city shouting at the top of his lungs, It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. And this is what Jesus has done for us. And, 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 and Paul says here, God has done this. God has done this. Holiness consists in the fulfilling of the law's demands. What exactly does fulfilling the righteousness requirements of the law mean? And the answer is in the word that we saw there in Ephesians 4.10, walk. That we might walk. And he says here in verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This portrays the, 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 the Christian life as, as a pathway along which we walk, and our eyes are no longer fixed primarily on the law. Our eyes are fixed upon Christ. That's what Hebrews 12, 1 says. Laying aside every sin and every weight that encumbers us, that entangles us, that slows us down, that hinders us. And in verse 2, he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the author and perfecter of our faith, keeping our eyes on Christ. Can Christians still sin? Yes, and we still do. We will continue to as long as we're in this body. But I want to tell you something, folks. There is a world of difference between sinning and living in sin. <clears throat> the 
prodigal son left home. He said, Father, I want my inheritance. Now, do you realize what an insult that was to his father? You know when you get an inheritance? When somebody dies. And he said, Father, I want my inheritance. And he, and he, and he takes off into the world and, and he spends it all on wine, women, and song. And he's got all his friends around him. His money runs out and so do the friends. Isn't that how it works? <sighs> and you need to understand the impact of this, of, of this story when Jesus tells it. Where did he wind up? He wound up in a hog pen. Now, folks, let me tell you something. There is no worse place that a young Jewish man could have found himself than in a hog pen. But he's there, and he's eating the food that the hogs are getting. He says, you know what? He said, my father's servants are eating better than I am. I will get up, I'm going to go home, and I'm going to confess my sin to my father. I'm going to seek repentance. I'm going to repent. I'm going to seek his forgiveness. And he gets up and he heads off home. And then the story really gets good. Because it says the father saw him afar off. You know what that tells us, don't you? He was watching. The father probably sat on the front porch in his rocking chair every day looking down the road. And then one day he sees this figure coming toward him. You know what the father did? He said, okay, I'm going to sit here and see what he's got to say. I'm going to see what he's got to say for himself. No, that's not what he did. The father jumped up. He ran off the porch. He ran to meet his son. And he embraced him and kissed him. Put a ring on his finger. Kill the fatted calf. My son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost has been found. Isn't that a beautiful story? Do you know why he was not happy in that hog pen? He wasn't a pig. He was a father's son. Hey, you ever heard the other side of that story? You know when that boy came home. While he was in the hog pen, he kind of got attached to this little piglet. <laughs> he did. So he comes home, and he's carrying it underneath his arm. The father says, son, what, what's with the pig? And he said, well, dad, and he tells him the story. I wound up in a hog pen. We were eating. I just kind of got attached to him. But you know what? It's okay. His house broke. I've trained him. He'll just run around the house, and he'll be fine. And the father very reluctantly said, well, okay, if you say so. So a few days go by, and the boy comes running through the house, and he says, Dad, Dad, have you seen my piglet? Have you seen where he's at? And the father's standing here looking out the window, and he says, yeah, I see, I see him. He said, well, where is he? And he said, he's out there in the mud where a pig belongs. Now, you see the difference here? The young man was in a hog pen where he didn't belong. He tried to take the pig into the house where it didn't belong. But they both wound up where they did belong. And, and as we look at this story and what Paul says here, that, that, that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled, fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Are you a son or a daughter of God? Are you a child of the living God? I want to tell you something, folks. You will never be happy in a hog pen. You'll never be happy in your sin. You may fall in that hog pen. You may even intentionally go into it. But you won't stay there. And that's what Paul is telling us. That there's a world of difference between sinning and living in sin. And if you go to the book of 1 John, John tells us that. He says those who are born of God do not sin. They cannot sin. Now, now we know that he doesn't mean that we can't sin because we all do. What John's saying there is we cannot continuously, it cannot be a habitual uh, li uh, lifestyle for us. You show me somebody who professes to be a born-again Christian, and you know it's amazing it's amazing. I, I was strung, uh, just scrolling through Facebook the other day, and I came across this, this article about famous people who are born again. Madonna. Oprah. I'm trying to think of one name that, that if I said this one, you'd really be shocked. But they claim to be born again. But you know, John the Baptist, when he was baptizing there in the Jordan River, he told them, he said, bring forth fruit worthy of repentance. In other words, he says, you claimed you've repented, now go walk like it. That's the same thing Paul's saying. That's the same thing Jesus was saying to that woman. He said, neither do I condemn you, now go live like I haven't condemned you. Go live like I've forgiven you. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul found that even after he was saved, as we saw in verse in, in chapter seven, even after he was saved, he could still not fulfill the requirements of the law, not on his own. Not on his own. And we find the same thing. It is only by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can ever be holy. But listen, folks, as we've talked about in our Wednesday night study, we need to understand that, that salvation, justification, is what's known as monergistic. It is God alone. We play no part. It's God alone. But sanctification is synergistic. We are, you know what that word synergistic means? It means co-laborer. We co-labor. The Holy Spirit works in us. But you see, I must be diligent to spend time in God's Word. I must be diligent to meditate on God's Word, to study God's Word. To, to uh, Holiness is intentional. It's when I wake up in the morning and say, Today I will live a holy life before my God. Today I will Make God's word a priority in my life. I will make God's people a priority in my life. I will make glorifying and exalting God in my life a priority. It's me saying I will do that. It's not me getting up in the morning. It, it doesn't happen by accident. It takes diligent prayer. Diligent Bible study. Being with God's people. Hearing God's word preached and hearing God's word taught. We must do these things in order to progress in 
the work that God has begun in us. But it, we, what we need to understand, we don't have the power to do this. But the Holy Spirit does. By the way, you know who the Holy Spirit is, right? He's God. You know, Peter tells us in, in the book of 1 Peter, he says that we have been become partakers of the divine nature. That's fascinating words right there. You know what Peter is saying? Peter is saying that when I got saved, the very nature of God himself came to live within me. Can I tell you what God's desire for me more than anything else is? That I be holy. You be holy, he said, because I am holy. And if you're not holy, you're not going to see me. You're not going to be in my presence. So God desires us to be holy and is the spirit of God. But we, you and I, we must be diligent in doing this. I must live on purpose. I must live intentionally with the, with the goal of saying, I want to be like Christ. That's the ultimate goal that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Holiness is the work of the Holy Spirit. And as I said, holiness is mandatory. This is not an option for you as a believer in Christ. God doesn't say, do you want to be holy or if you don't want to be holy? You know, I'm going to do this for holy people and this for not holy people. Actually, he does say that. He says, here's what I'm going to do for holy people. I'm going to give them eternal life. Here's what I'm going to do for unholy people. I'm going to send them to hell. That's basically what he says. So he, being holy is not optional for us. We must be walking according to the Spirit of God. And someone asked, well, how can we tell if we're walking in the Spirit? Well, Paul gives us a very simple. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. <clears throat> How do we tell if we're walking in the flesh or if we're walking in the spirit? Well, Paul says in verse 19 that the works of the flesh are evident. <laughs> Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, he says, there is no law. What do you see in your life? You know, one of, the, one of the great sins of the modern church today tells me that I am not to look at anyone and judge them according to their salvation. But the Bible tells me different. Now, I can't see your heart, but I can see your fruit. Jesus even said, he said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. You know, I, we're, we're fruit inspectors. What fruit do you see in my life? Do you see love and joy and peace and kindness? What kind of fruit do I see in your life? And you can look at me and say, I believe there's a man walking in the spirit. I can look at you and say, there's a man or woman walking in the spirit. Now, Paul left one off here, but you know he meant to put it in here. 
But the fruit of the Spirit is you don't put beans in chili. (laughs) 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 Folks, what, what kind of fruit do you have in your life? You see, Paul says that that God did what he did in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Holiness is mandatory. Today, I ask you if holiness is necessary, and it is. How do we account for the unholy state of so many professing believers, so many professing churches in our culture today? How do we account for that? It suggests that many who consider themselves believers are really not. It suggests that many, even though they have the word church across there, they're really not. Because I want to tell you, there are two things in particular, folks, that will characterize a true believer in Christ and a true church of Christ. And that is obedience and holiness. Those two things above all else. Are you following hard after holiness? You know, the writer to the Hebrew says we are to pursue holiness, to chase after it, to run after it. It must be intentional, as I said. But are you pursuing holiness? Are you running hard after it? What we need to see today is an awakening of professing believers to the fact that their lack of concern for Christian doctrine, their lack of concern for holiness proves that they're not truly saved. Listen, I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you again. Do you know what we need today? We need men who are holy men. We need men who will love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We need men who will lead their wives to church, who will lead their families in prayer, who will lead their families in learning to trust and exalt God. We need men like that today in our churches. You know what else we need? We need women who are godly. We need women who are godly and who will submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. Women who are, who are uh, intentionally staying in the Word, teaching their children to, to, to grow in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We need husbands and wives who love each other and determined to be holy together. We need single people who are dedicated to, and, and, and they are dedicated to purity in their lives. Who want to be holy before God. That's what we need today. Can I tell you something? Not only does the church need that, the world outside needs that. Do you know that? They hate us, but they need us. (laughs) And we need to be this. We must be holy and godly men and women. This is what we need. Gentlemen, will you dedicate yourself today to be a godly man? Ladies, will you dedicate yourself today to be a holy woman? I want to tell you, we do need an awakening in our current church today. You know, in our church history, eventually we're going to get to this. 
you know, great men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield preached in the New England area back in the 1700s, 1600s, and there was a great awakening took place. That's what it's called, the Great Awakening. It's one of the greatest revivals ever seen in modern history. It lasted for years. And do you know what Jonathan Edwards preached that brought about the Great Awakening? He only preached one main thing. Justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what he taught. But we need this today. Are you actively pursuing holiness? Are you daily seeking to be like Christ? Are you seeking to be obedient? Do you wake up every morning and pray and say, God, make me obedient today. Make me holy today. Are you willing to turn off the TV and open up the book? Are you willing to put aside the worldly pursuits and follow hard after God and holiness? Now listen, doesn't mean I can't watch TV. Doesn't mean I can't do things in the world. But you see, the world has a way of dragging us and grabbing hold of us. The world has a way of saying, ah, oh, you can do that later. You know, I want to tell you, you know what I think? One of, the, one of the most dangerous sins in the world is procrastination. <laughs> Satan will whisper in your ear, I know you need to read, but you know you really like this show when it's coming on. Just watch it and then go read. I've fallen for it. Guess what? I didn't go read. Even after, by then it was too time to go to bed or had to go do something else. So we have to be intentional. We have to be on purpose, Christians. And Paul says, God did what the law, God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And you know why he did it, Paul said? In order that we, uh, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How are you walking this morning? How's your walk? Are you walking in the flesh? Are you walking in the spirit? What, what fruit do you see in your life? What fruit do you see in my life? By the way, do you know that if you see unholy fruit in my life, I need you to tell me? I do. And you know what? If I see it in your life, I'm going to tell you. You know why? Because I love you. That's why. And if you love me, you'll tell me. But we need to see fruit. We need to see godly fruit. And this godly fruit doesn't happen by accident. This godly fruit happens with me submitting to the will of the Holy Spirit and getting into God's Word and meditating and memorizing and living and being obedient to God's Word. And notice that it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Bobby. It's not the fruit of whatever your name is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you see this stuff coming out through me, it's the Spirit of God working through me. It's not me. We can never, we must be careful to never ever make anything about this about us. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone. For what purpose? To the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, Oh, God, we thank you this morning. 
that you did for us, Father, what we could not do. That, Father, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but you have made us alive in Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Lord, we, we are so undeserving of your grace or your mercy, but we thank you that you do for us, Father, not because we're good, but because you are good. That, Father, you do it not that we might boast, but that you might be glorified. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done. Thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And I pray this morning that if there's one listening that is not in Christ, that, Father, they may hear the gospel this morning, that they may repent, turn to Christ. Father, may you grant them repentance and grace. If they are one that you have called, that they might come. Father, we praise you. You are so good and holy and righteous. Father, may these verses that we have read this morning and looked at, may they lead us to our knees in worship before you. And may we live our lives on purpose. Father, that we might do it in gratitude for what you have done. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Turn to page.